his tablet. It's it's like everything is stacked against this special, folks. Not only is my computer on the fritz, I'm su- uh, suffering from allergies, of course, that time of year, and some severe back pain. Well, it's not that severe. I just want to make you feel sorry for me. But, uh, you know, it's, as Jack Murdoch said, it's not how many times you get knocked down. It's how many times you get up. So, without further ado, with that warning in place, I'm going to give you my Netflix Daredevil Season 1 special. Welcome, one and all, to the Dave's Daredevil Podcast, Daredevil Season 1 Special. I am J. David Weeder. Of course, you can call me Dave. We're all friends here. And this is it. Season 1 of Marvel's Daredevil has hit. It has been consumed in massive quantities. Some people are doing the whole binge-watch thing like I did. Others are kind of spacing it out over time. And, of course, all are valid. Enjoy this show any which way you want to. Before we dive in, as I mentioned up front, this show is, uh, this episode is plagued with a lot of technical issues. I do sincerely apologize. Hope you give me a little bit of amnesty. Uh, I do want to give a special thanks to Bob Fisher, who helped make this episode possible to get into your ears. Thanks to my technical problems, Bob was able to step in in a pinch, and we just want to say thank you, Bob. Now, I'm going to do kind of uh, what I'm looking at as a highlight reel of the show. This is, uh, this Daredevil podcast is a comic book podcast. I focus on reading comics. But even though I'm going to stick to that in the long term, when you do something like, ha- when you have something, I should say, monumental, like a show drop with your character, darn it, you have to recognize that. So while I'm doing sort of an overview one shot, there are places you can go where they're going to be covering things episode by episode, just complete breakdown, complete coverage. One of those places is the Defenders podcast at dvmpe.com. That's D as in Dave, V as in Vampire, M as in Maggie, P as in Paul, E as in Edward.com. They will be doing episode-by-episode episode analysis, one each week, so I'll point you their direction. Blog-wise, look for knifedinvenice.com. It's a blog where they're going to be looking at, of course, each episode. And, of course, your ever-reliable sources, Other Murdoch Papers with Christine over at othermurdochpapers.com and manwithoutfear.com. This is going to get a lot of coverage, but I have to put in my two cents, right? I do have the show, so that's what I got to do. And it seems that covering characters when they have major media tie-ins has become my lot in life. Uh, for good or for ill in some cases. For example, in 2012, when I was doing Pad Smash, we had the Avengers hit. And me and Michael Bailey and Lee Busby all talked about that. That was a lot of excitement in that room. Uh, 2013 was Man of Steel. Of course, I had at that time a Superman podcast. So it just seems like this comes along at opportune times. And of course, this was a huge event for me. My guy is back on the screen for the first time in 12 years. So it's a big, big deal. And, you know, Marvel really rolled this out. They had a great, great promotional campaign, which included billboards and time in uh, Hell's Kitchen, lots of uh, viral videos, motion posters. It was a really well rolled out program. And of course, Marvel's been doing that right. So for me and my wife, we celebrated it. We were extremely excited, and we actually made it a, an evening. We actually split it up. We watched seven episodes on Friday, six episodes on Saturday. And as we entered into it, we made a few Daredevil-themed snacks, like Daredeviled Eggs, which are, to be honest with you, regular Daredevil, or pardon me, regular deviled eggs. But what we tried to do was make a stencil of the Daredevil symbol and put paprika on it. They didn't come out quite right, but they were delicious. We also made Devil's Food Cupcakes, which did come out great. We took that same stencil, put some powdered sugar on the top of it, so you had a Daredevil logo on the Devil's Food Cupcakes, and those were also really good. I may have eaten more than my fair share of those. Uh, We also, for me, I had some wine. When I began this show, I toasted it with a bottle, or probably with a glass, 
let's not get all alcoholic here, but I toasted it with a glass of the Velvet Devil Merlot, and I have one bottle set back, Vintage 2013. So when this show does reach its eventual conclusion, and please mark that word eventual as the key word in that sentence, I will be toasting the conclusion of a work hopefully well done. So with this being monumental, I did buy a different bottle and toasted uh, this monumental occasion with a glass of Velvet Devil Merlot, because it is a big, big event for me. For all of us, really, all Daredevil fans. So before we dive into some of the nuts and bolts here, I'm going to talk uh, generally, give a little non-spoiler review ahead of the break before the spoiler warning goes into effect. So if you're listening to this, you have not finished the show, you are safe at the moment. General thoughts is Marvel is branching out in a big, big way. They're trying new things. And Daredevil is probably the most ideal character to try something like this with. I mean, it worked with Marvel Knights to try a different tone, different kind of series. So Daredevil is just perfectly ideal and excites the hell out of me that they chose Daredevil. I mean, yeah, Marvel's already on TV. We have Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. But I'll be honest with you, that show never grabbed me. I just never got into it. It lost me right out of the gate. And that show is pretty much by the book. It's in the same tone and same, uh, you know, aesthetic as the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This initiative breaks that mold by trying street-level heroes, dark and gritty, and it works. To me, the high point of the Marvel Cinematic Universe so far has been the Winter Soldier. Loved Captain America Winter Soldier. Thought it was phenomenal. So I wanted something that equated uh, to Daredevil the way that movie equated to Captain America, and I was not disappointed. Because Winter Soldier, I mean, it just got Captain America. It got him. It put him in the right scenario to make a compelling movie and a, a superhero movie smashed with a spy movie. Perfect. This show does that as well. It gets Daredevil. It takes a very different path to get to its point, but it gets it. It's dark. It's gritty. However, it never collapses under the weight of its grittiness. It never allows itself to wallow and become unnerving. One of the fears I had was that this show was going to be The Shield. If you don't remember The Shield, that starred Michael Chiklis as Vic Mackey, a corrupt cop. And while my, it was more my dad's show than mine, but I watched it by proxy, the show would always unnerve me and make me very, very paranoid with just how gritty it would be and how unrelentingly harsh the show was. Almost like it didn't have a sense of humor. Now, Daredevil, yes, we're seeing a dark and gritty version, but Daredevil's a, a character of many, many textures. He's been many, many things over the years. Straight up superhero, urban vigilante, so on and so forth. This show... It doesn't show all of those aspects. I'll be honest with you. It sticks to most of the colors you would see in the Daredevil prism, metaphorically speaking. When it comes to things like fighting, yes, it's not matrixy. It's down to earth. It's it's weighted. It's harsh. But, you know, we're talking about brawls here. Straight up brawls. Nobody's really doing impossible things. The gravity and the physics of it works on every level. And, you know, just if I had a criticism about the fighting, while it has some extremely good standout fight scenes, the fights can become repetitive at times. Just a little bit of the same scenario each and every time, at least at the base mechanic level. Now, the acting across the board, across the board, was phenomenal. High caliber. There are no weak points in terms of acting. I just thought this was a phenomenal cast that came out of nowhere just to be one of the best collaborative ensemble casts I've ever seen. The writing, on the other hand, is also massive, massively overall story. Pardon me, I read that note wrong. That's awkward. That's right, you're getting the unedited version, so there it is. There's my first goof. Um, the writing is actually just incredible across the board as well. What we're doing is a seeing a balancing of a massive overall story with a lot of different components, lots of moving parts in there to balance it out, but it never loses it. It never fails to track the story. It never loses its way. Everything does have a payoff, which I like. So, I mean, the 13-hour movie aspect of it, and granted, these are individual chapters, but it's still one big 13-hour story. It works. It really, really works, which I wasn't sure about. With this format, there's room to let the story and the acting and the characters breathe and just give subtlety and moments of real gravitas and pathos. I mean, it really was just a well-made, well-crafted story. So my advice to you is if you are a Daredevil fan and you're on the fence about getting Netflix pardon me, to watch Daredevil, don't hesitate. Just get a 30-day free trial, set some time aside, make this a priority. You owe it to yourself as a Daredevil fan. So that's my non-spoiler review. 
What I'm going to do now is take a quick podcast promo break, and when we come back, I'm going to get into the spoilerific Dave's Daredevil podcast review of Marvel's Daredevil. Be right back. Hi, folks. Sean Ingle here. And Strange Disembodied Voice here. And we're here to talk about the new direction going on over at Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Like our in-depth coverage of the Howard Chaykin pen, Guy Gorker, collateral damage. No, because that book was utter sh**. But we are moving into the Judd Winnick run on Green Lantern, where we'll get stories about psychotic ring wielders, teenage sexual identity issues, and Kyle becoming an nearly godlike being. And yet, still not as weird as Guy Gardner's warrior face. Yeah, you may have a point there. Plus, we'll be covering the ancillary books that came out at the same time, including Circle of Fire, A Thousand and One Emerald Knights, The Black Circle Green Arrow Crossover, and so much more. Which will easily make up for not covering collateral damage. Also, if you're subscribing to the show via iTunes, be sure to go to Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys to make sure you get new episodes updated weekly. So, they kicked you off the main feed? Uh, No, they just streamlined it so the Two True Freaks proper shows would only be on it. Are you sure it's not because Scott doesn't want a Green Lantern podcast on the network? Uh... No, in fact, he's spoken very glowingly about the show. I mean, he's even offered to come on into a guest bit. He said he really likes it, and despite his fact that he doesn't like Green Lantern all that much, he's come check out Just One of the Guys over at TwoTrueFreaks.com and subscribe in iTunes at Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys. You'll be glad you did, or double your money back. And it may be self-explanatory at this point, but I feel just as a courtesy, I'm going to remind everybody that beyond this point, there be spoilers. I'm not going to hold back in three, two, one, go. First note I want to talk about is the opening credits of the show. The fact that they have them is pretty incredible because they could have gotten away with something monumental. Pardon me, minimal. Uh, It's going to be that kind of night. They could have gotten away with something minimal, just the uh, titles and let everything flow over the main action. But they actually took the time to make an extremely captivating set of opening credits in which the city is sort of formed from either blood or paint, depends on your perspective, going over invisible objects like water towers, churches, things like that. So I wanted to make that note since it does involve every episode. And it took me a while to figure out how I wanted to approach this special. Do I want to go episode by episode? Do I want to speak more generally? And I decided to go more generally, Um, just kind of citing certain episodes, more of the greatest hits, what I liked, what I didn't like about this show. First of all, let me start with something I did like. First episode, right out of the gate, we jump right into the action. The accident has occurred, Matt's on the ground, and we're off and running. We are off and running. And the greatest thing, the moment I'm like, this is going to be great, was seeing that the guy saying, hey, that kid saved me, Matt remains a hero. Something that the 2003 movie cut out of the equation, unfortunately. It's a very, very emotional scene. And really, you see with this scene that the budget was well used. I don't know that the budget was something like uh, you would see with Winter Soldier or the Avengers, clearly. But the budget was broad. But again, again, we're kind of talking about network TV budget, not big time, huge smash movie budget. But it was well used. We don't see the accident itself, for example. We don't see Jack's final fight, and there's even a fight that's mentioned uh, and expressly important between episodes one and two that we don't see in which Daredevil gets ambushed. These aren't put on the screen, but the bunny is used other places. In in substitution for some of those potentially expensive over-the-top scenes, we get a lot of emotional moments, including this moment of Jack finding Matt. Uh, the actor that plays young Matt was really, really good, which, again, everybody across the board was a great acting talent, brought their A-game to this. Charlie Cox. Let's talk about him right out of the gate. The man himself. He won me over. And he won me over in his first scene, in which he's in the confessional talking about his dad and how his dad would let the devil out when we got him, uh, when he got his opponent cornered. We see this man being uh, tough and also being vulnerable at times. And Cox plays it to the bone, across the board, all the time. It's a phenomenal performance. He can also turn that around from something vulnerable and be incredibly intimidating in his costume. And let's talk about the costume, the black costume. Yeah, the first time I saw it, and I can actually tell you the date that I saw it was October 11th, 2014, pardon me. Uh, the reason I remember that is it was when a lot of the images were first coming out for the Daredevil series, including the Joe Cazada poster. 
And why it stands out is not only was it relevant to what we were seeing, it was the kind of this moment that cinched it, the no backing out of this show coming back. And as I saw these images and some of the stuff coming from the Comic-Con, I looked up because it was cold, it was rainy, I'm at a band competition for my nephew in a big stadium, and I realized we're sitting in Section DD. There's no other choice that I have now. I'm, I'm in. But the first reaction, my knee-jerk reaction, was that the costume looked a lot like Rex Smith's costume from Trial of the Incredible Hulk. Not something I'm incredibly enamored with, but it works in this. It works more often than not. And really, to be honest with you, in the context of Trial of the Incredible Hulk, that, that costume worked too. Just not quite as well as this, to be honest with you. Um, some shots of the masks straight, uh, looking straight at Charlie Cox, they didn't quite sell me. And just like uh, Rex Smith's costume, it kind of telegraphs that Daredevil is blind, doesn't it? No eye holes that had to raise some red flags, but nobody, and I mean nobody, mentions it in this. But most of my, my fears and reservations on the costume were put away and at the beginning of what I call my double jeopardy moment for this show. So we had a great emotional opening where I realized this could be something special. Charlie Cox sells me. And then before we get the first opening credits, we get an incredible spot on action sequence with Daredevil busting up some human traffickers. Not only is that pulled from Man Without Fear, it was the moment that really just sealed it for me. There were almost tears in my eyes because... Double Jeopardy, for those that don't know, uh, refers to a scene in Superman the movie, which is something that I hold very dear, in which Superman saves Lois Lane and then turns around and saves a helicopter. It's something where it hits it pitch perfectly, like the right note at the right time. It just gets it, and it gets you with it. And that opening scene was, it was when I knew I was in. I saw Daredevil throwing things, banking things, being Daredevil. And there was no way I wasn't going to love it at this point. And of course, it doesn't hurt that Turk happened to be one of the people Daredevil busts up. You add a detail like Turk and you've got me. I mean, maybe I'm a cheap date, but Turk, you've got me all in. And uh, in this episode, the first episode, we don't meet Fisk. We have Fisk's presence. And rightfully so. It's several episodes before we see Fisk, yet his presence is felt. And that presence is intimidating. So it builds up the character before D'Onofrio, well, comes in and just owns it. And another compliment I'll pay, just kind of extending off of that, is the first episode, especially the final scenes of the first episode, it lays all the cards on the table. It's a it's a montage, and of course Rocky even had a montage, but it shows us exactly what Daredevil is going to be coming up against in the upcoming season. We have the Yakuza, Russian Mafia, Chinese drug trade, and then good old American evil lawyer, played by Bob Gutton, Bob, pardon me, Gutton, who was in Shawshank Redemption as Leland Owsley. Great, great character turn. No, it's not exactly the owl by any stretch, but a fun character in his own right. And just the fact that they made the effort to give him that name, I appreciate that. Now, each one of these factions here would be a challenge. No no doubt about it. And yet Daredevil's going to go up against all of these with the head being Kingpin. We're up for some stuff this time. And of course, all of this starts rolling because of one simple plot thread. Everything starts splitting from one thing. Karen Page. And of course, Karen is played by Deborah Ann Wall, of uh, who I met through Twilight. She was a redhead there. And it because of that, because I got to know her through that show, it took me a while to warm to her as Karen Page. But when I did, it was all, it was complete. It was total. I totally bought her. And the thing is, the genius of what has happened here is that the story allows for sort of a born-again analog of Karen as a catalyst for bad things. The, the initiator of a lot of different plots coming against our characters. But this also, in turn, allows Karen to be a linchpin character. She's very important to the overall plot. I mean, really, we're not seeing Karen wasted like we did with Ellen Pompeo in the 2003 movie. I mean, why bother including her? That's a name check at best, and Karen's too important of a character to leave on the table like that. I think one of the most commendable things about this is that Karen is very much the one that pushes the story forward. She's a crusader in, his, in her own right and kind of the, the center of the story in a lot of ways, in ways that Daredevil isn't. Really, she's the connecting piece to several different characters, such as Fisk, as well as uh, Ben Yurick, who we're going to see later. It's, it's perfect. She's a central character, just like Matt and Foggy, which is where she should be, and apparently... We've only scratched the surface of what stories can be played out with Karen since she has this implied past, which I think we can kind of guess what that is. Again, it's a born-again reference, but it's not its not so overt, it's annoying. Let's be honest, most of us, when we heard that this was taking a Frank Miller reference, 
kind of got a little leery that it would go heavy-handed with those Frank Miller references. It doesn't at all. It's its own thing, and I appreciate that. It has a few elements that would appear in the Frank Miller stories, of course, the origin and stick, things like that. But it's not an homage. It's not Sin City where they're going beat by beat. And um, I really appreciate that. I'm glad we got to see Karen really do something. I was really excited about that, and I got into her character the further I got into the show. She did not get annoying, thankfully, because Karen, well, you know me and Karen. She can get on my nerves. Um, she has great chemistry with her co-stars, just like Eldon Henson. Eldon Henson's Foggy. A lot of people have been complaining about this, and I don't get the criticism in any way, shape, or form. Really, Henson does a great job performing, and for once, like uh, comparing to the 2003 movie, Foggy has more to do. And by that, I mean a lot more. He has a relevant subplot that really is dedicated to him. And you know what? Really, again, to come back to the acting, we see Henson invest in this role in a big way. I mean, when he is uh, reacting to the the abuse and eventual death of Miss Cardenas, he's crushed. And it's, it's it felt crushing. And he brought tears to my eyes. And yeah... Yeah, he's kind of the plucky comic relief. I get that. But that's not the only aspect that is brought to the table. It's not the only aspect of the Foggy character. He has an extremely strong character arc, especially the second half when he learns Matt's secret, which was an incredible episode. And I'm glad that they really had the balls to do things that would surprise viewers. They didn't just play it to, to by the book, so to speak. They really took risks. Some good, some were hard to swallow. Um, but the re- when he reacts to that that revelation, the betrayal in Henson's eyes, it's real. It's hurtful. How would you feel if your best friend was lying to you? And everything that built your friendship was pretty much a lie in itself. That's not something easy to deal with. And Henson doesn't let it be something to deal with. Um, we get a whole episode dedicated to just processing that information. It's well written. It's well acted. And I think Henson was a perfect choice for Foggy. Uh, the thing is, again, it's being written like that, that betrayal, the relationships in this show feel real and organic. They never feel overplayed or just uh, manipulative, I guess would be a good way to put it. We're not manipulating our emotions. We are actually being affected by these relationships. I would say that the one exception to that, though, I have to kind of take that back. The one thing that never quite set right was Rosario Dawson's Claire Temple. She never seemed to settle into a groove in the series. I never got her her role overall. The reason why we got a name actress and, uh, you know, a a co-credit. Her character arc wasn't interesting. It didn't feel organic. At best, we kind of got a a third-person perspective of Matt. And yeah, I know she was there to patch him up, but you could have done something entirely different than put a whole character arc in there. Now, I'm I'm aware she's probably going to be like the Coulson of the Defenders uh, sub-universe. But still, as much as I like Rosario Dawson, and I do, I like Rosario Dawson a lot, I never got into her character. Um, On the other end of the spectrum, though, is Jack Murdoch. His story is done right. We get to see a lot of character beats with Jack, and I was really, really engaged in in his story. Granted, we knew the story, but to watch it play out with with the acting chops that we saw there was, was extremely good and very emotional. Very, very, very emotional. The actor, however... While he's a good actor, I think he played the part correctly. His look always threw me off because he looked like D.B. Sweeney, and that's not how I picture Jack Murdoch. Jack Murdoch is uh, a big slab of meat. You know, he's got a Cro-Magnon brow. Um, to make a good comparison, David Keith from the 2003 movie. The look was right, but the acting here allows Jack a lot of screen time and effective screen time at that. In fact, the origin uh, story itself... And all the development of young Matt pre- and post-accident, they're played with a lot of detail and a lot of good details. A very thought-out approach to this. I thought it was incredible. The details, again, I mean, things like an Ireland poster in the Murdoch home, um, Sweeney uh, showing up, uh, just Matt flinching at a bell being rung at Fogwell's gym and learning Braille. The fact that they took time to show us this, and they didn't try to compress it into 10-15 minutes of a movie... They allowed that to breathe, which is going to be a big theme as I go through this. Um, we also set up the real theme right out of the gate, the devil. The fact that Jack Murdoch had something in him that would switch, his rage would go on in the ring, and the fact that Matt has some of that in there. His anger and his rage 
is sort of his cross to bear. He can either manage to focus it or let it destroy him. And at times, you're almost convinced that Matt may let it destroy him. Red is a good color for rage. We see a lot of this play out. Uh, color in, in, in all aspects were powerful themes. They were the color in this show. It didn't go with like this black and white palette like the crow did. It let color do a lot of works. They wielded color like a weapon. For example, we see a lot of yellow. The lights in the city are yellow. Lights coming through the window, very, very uh, light yellow. Of course, that's the color of fear. But it's also the color of jaundice, so it makes the city feel sick. Sick with its crime and the plague that's coming on it. Um, uh, in terms of the kingpin and what he's trying to do, it's a very, very, very subtle under uh, underscore of what we're seeing on the screen. But again, red also comes back quite a bit, not only because Daredevil's known for wearing his red costume, um, but that color of rage. Um, for example, we see it in Jack's robe, which is kind of an echo. It's not a coincidence that Matt hides his accoutrement, his black costume, underneath the robe of Jack Murdock, despite the fact that he can't see it. Um, we also have things like the off-white of Fisk's wall paintings. These two come to a head. The color is is kind of the story of two opposing men, Daredevil and Kingpin, and where they are similar and where they diverge. For example, as we see Fisk in uh, his first appearance, he's looking at this white painting, um, which I, I'll call the Rabbit in the Snowstorm painting, and that reminds him of the wall he stared at as a boy. Matt, in turn, goes to the same uh, gallery to meet Vanessa and get a feeling for her, and she he has shown this painting that is red and yellow. And Vanessa explains that the red is the color of rage, yellow is the hope shining through. And it really does set up this sort of cracked mirror image of the journey these two characters are on in terms of Fisk and Matt. Fisk's story begins as a boy, with him staring at that wall and killing his father, which gives him this sort of stunted growth. If you notice, when we first meet Fisk, and especially when he's around Vanessa, he is sort of... uh, He's socially awkward, is what he is. He's like a 12-year-old boy. His mannerisms, everything about it is a shy... 12-year-old boy. So he's there, and I think, really, if you want to be honest with you, with ourselves, Fisk is somebody who does have this 12-year-old mentality. He's a man that throws a fit when he doesn't get his way. I mean, for the love of Pete, he smashes, oh, he doesn't smash it, he decapitates a man with a car door because he embarrassed him. That's a 12-year-old throwing a fit. Fisk is a big man-baby, and that painting keeps taking him back to that moment as a child where he made a fateful decision. Now, does he want to redo it or does he want to continue through? That's never fully played out on the screen, but there's a lot going inside that head. And that painting represents that fork in the road. Meanwhile, Matt uh, and his red painting with the anger and rage and the yellow coming through for hope, it really signifies how Matt had that rage as a kid. And Stick even mentions it. You need to use your anger, but you got to get that rage under control. And as we see this character arc play out, Matt goes a different direction. He moves past his childhood and that rage and embraces and focuses that anger to bring hope, to focus that into a symbol where, well, Fisk ends up finding his uh, eventual downfall in that painting and the fact that he's in a cell looking at a wall that looks just like that painting. I bet he feels like he wasted his money now. So the use of those colors, or lack of in terms of one painting, really thought, I thought that was one of the most artistic touches of the show that they allow these little nuanced moments that aren't put up right in front of you because they're spread out over multiple episodes, but they're important. They show that there is a thematic backdrop to this story that you wouldn't necessarily get on other shows. It puts this show very much ahead of several others. We have two men with similar backgrounds in a lot of ways. Matt and uh, Fisk both come from Hell's Kitchen. They are kind of defined uh, in their paths by the deaths of their father, their paths just take them to opposite directions. And both men played the, the roles superbly. Granted, they rarely shared the scene together, but they had one scene where really they got to talk on the, C, the, the CB. I want to say CB, but that's not right. The two-way radio. And that scene I thought was exquisite. The scene where these two are finally talking, not face-to-face, but close. It reminded me of the movie Heat from 1995, which was a Michael Mann movie, which had Al Pacino as a cop. And then Robert De Niro was a robber. There's a scene, as you're starting to get close to the third act, where these two men actually meet and sit down and have a cup of coffee and just discuss what they do openly. 
And when you have two great actors doing scenes like this, you know, you know this sets it apart from other superhero shows. Where you have two actors that are free, they have the space to really let their performances shine. I, I just can't see how this could, could have been, uh, gone wrong. Well, I guess it, it's possible, but it didn't. So let's be honest with that. I mean, we have standout scenes like, you know, Fisk flipping and bashing a guy's head in, in which D'Onofrio switches from that childlike, um, sophisticated, pseudo-sophisticated, I should say, gentleman to just a ball of rage. Likewise, we have scenes of Charlie Cox standing in court, being the Matt Murdock I always wanted to see on screen, charming, intelligent, making a great reasoned argument in a courtroom. That scene really, really took me miles into my love of Charlie Cox as Matt Murdock. But while the standout performances, they were, of course, standout, the things I liked were the details, like the paintings and the way they reflected their characters. I mean, the devil is in the details, to use a, a you know, cliche, but you look at Josie's bar. The fact that they made Josie's bar was kind of a given, uh, but showing Josie was pretty special. The sets were phenomenal. Nelson and Murdoch office looked like a rundown office. And of course, there was the Van Linty reference, Atlas uh, investigations, nice little details. Looking again, I mean, you have mentions of names like Rigoletto, Farnham. Uh, you have other little things that just made me nod with approval. General audiences may not get all the references. Sometimes I found out I missed a couple of things while watching it, such as Stiltman's legs. Yep, they're there. And as well as Stanley's cameo. Just Look uh, very closely at the wall in the police station. That's all I'll say. But these were all thought-out references that weren't, they weren't hammered home. We weren't shown how clever they were to make these references. They were just there. And they were there for us, you and I, to pick out. Now, to come back to the fights real quick, speaking of details, I mentioned up front that they're repetitive. But when they want to, they will reach for the sky. The choreography is phenomenal. And, of course, Episode 2 has the most talked about fight on the show. Now, full disclosure, hours before the show would have hit, I did sign off of all social networks. I wanted no spoilers. I'd already had one spoiler in terms of the red costume, but that was it. And I, when I came back, the one thing people were talking about was the fight in episode two in the hallway. This lengthy brawl on screen that just went on for quite a while in a single space, which I thought I was convinced, in fact, that it was done with special cuts that you didn't notice, but it turns out we've had confirmation that this long fight in this hallway, multiple doors, multiple foes, it was done in one shot. One shot. And I guess the choreography was only days. So kudos, kudos. You made one of the best fight scenes I've ever seen on screen, and you had limited amount of time to do it, and you did it in camera. Just single best brawl on screen, hands down. But the thing is, I mentioned this was lengthy, and... In some cases, it looked sloppy. Not in a bad way. I don't say that as a criticism. But it looked like a fight would. These aren't all ninjas. Although we do get a little bit of ninja action later, these aren't ninjas. These aren't all martial arts experts. They're brawlers. So the fights had an authenticity that I haven't seen in, an, in a fight in a long, long time. Now, there is violence in this show, of course. And it's graphic at times. It reaches a point of saturation. I'm not squeamish. But it always reached just to the, the very edge of my sensibilities. I mean, things like a, a suicide by spike to the head in episode three were a little hard for me to stomach. Granted, I mean, it is what it is, and I kind of went in with my eyes wide open, but sometimes you still just squirm, and that's the idea. This is a real world where bad things happen, and we want to communicate that. But the thing about that is, to kind of continue that thought, and to bring it back to kudos, is... The cuts and bruises received in these fights continue to the next episode. They carry through. There's a continuity to those injuries. Nobody gets beaten up, and the next episode they're walking around just fine, which I would have called BS on immediately. It takes a while for Matt to get back to full speed after taking a really bad beating and ending up in a garbage can. The show makes great use of not only that continuity, but it makes great use of its makeup department, and it's it's basically its backdrop in, in an actual New York area. We don't see a lot, if any, CGI outside of the credits. If we do, that's very subtle. It's very muted. And even Matt's senses are played more in camera tricks than CGI. So kudos. I love when you can actually do something skillful, special effect-wise, other than let's punch it up on the computer. Not that I'm completely against computer-generated imagery, but come on. 
I mean, really, we got one shot of Matt and how he sees things in his World on Fire Impressionist painting version. That's in episode five. It took us five episodes to get to see the world the way Matt sees the world. And to its credit, the show doesn't linger on the mechanics of the powers. It gives us enough to sell it, but it doesn't continuously break it down. And really, we don't get a lot of that until we get to Episode 7 when we see how Matt developed this skill. Episode 7, one of my favorite episodes because it features Stick, played by Scott Glenn, which, dear Lord, can you think of anybody else that could play Stick? I mean, for a while, Lance Henriksen was thrown around um, in circles, and Terrence Stamp, of course, I think he played him in Elektra. I wouldn't know because I didn't watch Elektra because half the time I can smell crap, and I smelled crap on that one. If I'm wrong, go ahead and email me, but I don't think I am. But Stick makes a limited appearance, but it's a memorable appearance, and it's perfectly timed as Episode 7 is right in the middle. It's the very middle episode, so it serves as an interlude. It also sets up potential Season 2 storylines or potential storylines for the Defenders, I'm not sure yet. But who would have ever thought that Stone would show up? I would not have put money on seeing a conversation between Stick and Stone on the live-action screen, and yet, there it was! There it was. It was real. It really happened. It's a thing now. We have seen this on screen, played by real people. And it's a mind blower. It's a mind blower that they ever thought to put this in. Because that is relatively deep into the mythology of Daredevil. Which tells me they were reading, they were studying, they were learning their stuff. I mean, the fact that this was included just raises the stakes and my respect for the show immensely. In my hopes and dreams, I never expected to see a hand ninja or stick. And yet... There it is. There it is. The second fight to blow my mind involves a hand ninja. Now, it's never expressly called a hand ninja, but red robes and the weapon. Come on, I know what a hand ninja looks like. And this show suddenly became more than just a show to me. It became a gift. A gift to me as a Daredevil fan. I mean, again, in my in my wildest hopes, I didn't expect that there would be a fight with a hand ninja. That just wasn't in the equation, and I accepted that. We're dealing with urban, gritty mafia types but the fact that they put this in if you're somebody who was involved with this protection just let me say thank you thank you so much and that wasn't the only curveball that was thrown our way was it there were a couple of things that i just i would not have seen coming for example the untimely demise of wesley and well spoiler ben yurik ben yurik vondi curtis hall really brings a a performance that's above regard above reproach sorry me um he, he really made Ben a human being in the way Joey Pants couldn't. This Ben Yurick was was likable. He was a gentleman. He was a higher class of Ben Yurick than we had before. No offense to Joey Pan, Joe Pantiolano, but this was a fantastic choice. And one of the things that I got excited about as we started seeing casting lists come out. Not only was his performance good, his scenes at the New York Bulletin. And yeah, I'm kind of bummed we didn't get a Daily Bugle. But that's with the Spider-Man license. It's to be expected. It's unfortunate that this went into production before the merger, or whatever you want to call it, of uh, Sony and Marvel. But the scenes at the, bu- at the Bulletin were fantastic. His co-worker, whose name suddenly escapes me, that's what you get when you're dealing with live podcasting, essentially. Um, but the way these scenes played out the Bulletin, it was like an Aaron Sorkin series. Within this crime drama is this really good personal drama of Ben Yurik and probably really the most human down to earth story in this series. As we see, he's trying to find a way to take care of his wife and just keep her safe, keep her alive, not put her in hospice. And darn it, if it didn't tug at your heartstrings, you're dead inside. That's all there is to it, period. His death, however, by way of Kingpin, it suddenly put everything in doubt. It threw off the equation in a big way because even as my wife said, how do you kill Ben Urich? Bear in mind, my wife's really a fan by proxy to some extent. She gets a lot of her stuff from me. But when my wife is shocked and wonders how you can kill Ben Urich, well, you know I am. Because even as the death scene is playing out, I think we were all thinking, well, Daredevil's going to come in and save him, right? He's going to get out of this somehow, right? He's not really dead, right? And then the next episode starts with, well, carrying of his casket in his funeral. Even up until we saw Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Yurik, I thought it was going to be a fake-out, but no, that really happened. But after you do that, is anybody safe? I mean, up to that point, I assumed Karen was going to get killed rather than Ben, 
Ben uh, has a role to play, and I would have assumed he would have played a role in AKA Jessica Jones, but clearly I am not correct in that, am I? Now, Wesley's death. Wesley was a fun character. He was fine. He was charming. He was Wilson Fisk's, Fisk's friend, pardon me. But his death was a little bit more expected in terms of I didn't expect him to make it out alive. However, I just didn't expect him to be shot dead by Karen. Karen kills a guy. He puts several, she puts one in the chest, dude. And you know what? This is the, the delicious part of that particular uh, development. In many ways, this is the irony. It's not lost on me. We met Karen because she was initially framed for killing a man, and she hadn't, but she got off. And then she goes on to fulfill that destiny and ends up killing Wesley. Full circle. So in a lot of ways, we saw kind of the similar prophecy, if you will, for lack of a better word, a similar foreshadowing, I'm sorry, of Karen's fate, as we saw with Matt and Fisk's in terms of those paintings. It's just her painting happened to be holding a knife and blood spilling out over her floor. It's subtle, and it just, that's what I like about it. The 13-hour movie format allows for subtlety, unlike the 2003 movie that went out of its way to throw everything and the kitchen sink into the movie. And I know it's hard to bash a movie that's trying to show love to, to its property, but really, the Easter eggs on this, the creator mentions, they're discreet. They're not distracting. Not distracting the way like Kevin Smith showing up for no reason. I mean, we had things like Stiltman's Legs, Stan Lee's cameo, remember, look on the wall in the police station. But we had Melvin Potter throwing a saw blade, plus, well, a little design for something something with saw blades. And a reference to Electra. If you weren't aware of the mythology of Daredevil, the Electra reference would just go away. No big deal. Even the evolution of, of Matt coming to grips of being a hero is important. First of all, let me say this, before I move on to his evolution. The thing I appreciated a lot was Matt was not an anti-hero because Daredevil has never been an anti-hero. Daredevil can be a flawed hero. Yes. And that's what I like about him, that he's like you and I, he's not going to do everything right, uh, but he's not an anti-hero. His intentions are always noble. And I'm glad they made it a point to not make him a complete anti-hero. He has moments of doubt, but that's normal. If you're going to put on a mask and fight crime, you're sometimes going to lose touch with Maybe what it is that set you on that path, or maybe some of the moral decisions as we see him considering killing Fisk, which, you know, the whole question of would you kill Hitler if you knew the future kind of comes into the equation. But Matt always takes the high road, which was important to me. I was kind of terrified that we would see that same attitude as the 2003 movie, which is a valid character arc, maybe not for Daredevil, but it kind of fits in with the flawed hero trying to find his way in the way they presented him accidentally or on purpose killing Kazada, depending on how you look at it. But we made it a point that Daredevil never killed anybody. Would I have thrown a fit if he had? No. I have always said that Daredevil, when push comes to shove, if, if it was his life versus somebody else, yeah, he might. It might come down to that. But they never put that decision on the table in a tangible way. He considers killing Fisk and realizes that's not who he is. But... It all comes to him embracing his idea of the devil of Hell's Kitchen and putting on a costume and becoming a symbol, that yellow hope. Now, granted, we never see the yellow costume, which is pretty, pretty incredible in my, my book. I was just thankful that it didn't happen. So let's talk about the costume. Let's get down to it. The costume works. The full Daredevil costume works. It looks good at a glance. There's no doubt that you're looking at Daredevil. Now, it does have uh, some issues in the face and the close-ups. The face looks a little bit too Batman-ish. Specifically, it reminded me of Val Kilmer's mask in Batman Forever. But the look is more tactical than stunt cycle. It's definitely not leather. And there is a story mechanic of how we got to that. So it makes sense. It's tangible. It's canny. And I liked it. I liked the costume a lot. I was a bit bummed that, predictably, we only saw him in the costume for the last act of the last episode. But darn it, I'll take it. It looked phenomenal. And to have him... Really put on that costume before then, really, it wouldn't have worked as well. Unless, I, you know, I can't think of the scenario where, where the evolution, the character evolution would have come together in the right way. And a note something, there's no Daredevil logo. There's no double Ds. You never see it in the show except for in the Maleev drawing that's on the Daily Bulletin. But the visage, that idea of the devil is the symbol, that's all the symbol needed. There's no scene of Daredevil choosing his name. It's kind of chosen for him, which... You know, let me get into some gripes I have here. 
some of the the parts that I could stand to see a little bit differently, but really, I mean, what we're talking about are nitpicks. I'll be honest with you. However, they are what they are. Daredevil doesn't choose his name. The reason is that he was never bullied. The kids are never shown calling him Daredevil. He was never picked on. Um, likewise, though, to kind of extend that, we never see Sweeney get his justice by way of Matt. We never see him get his his due because Daredevil seeks out justice, which really it means you're taking Jack out of the equation in Daredevil's origin. Yes, Jack Murdoch dies. He dies trying to show his son to be brave. But most of Daredevil's motivation for becoming Daredevil, not only was the bullies, but the fact that Jack Murdoch was killed and his killers didn't get brought to justice. And that brings a big gap in the emotional storytelling. And it's replaced with Matt hearing this father who is sexually abusing his daughter, trying to do the right thing, getting nowhere, and just going out and beating the snot out of this guy. Now, if you're doing that to a child, I think you deserve what you get. No questions about it. But at the same time, not avenging his father and bringing the killer to justice, it kind of didn't sit right with me. I mean, maybe that's just an omitted scene, uh, something we'll explore in season two, but it never quite got me. And again, yeah, that's kind of important to Daredevil's character, but it's not important here in some cases. The the emotional through line is still there. You still kind of get why Matt is doing what he's doing. So we learn to live with it. It's a nitpick. It's not really a big detriment to this version of Daredevil. Not overall. So let's use that overall idea to bring it into the final verdict on the 13 episodes of Daredevil. You know what? I just got to be honest with you. Despite my nitpicks, uh, Rosario Dawson's character, not Rosario Dawson, Rosario Dawson's character, Claire, not quite fitting in. Jack Murdoch not quite having the good, the right look, in my opinion. And again, the acting was superb, so I let that slide and sort of removing that Jack Murdoch motivation from Matt's origin. Despite some of these nitpicks and several others, I'm thankful. I'm just thankful I live in a world where this is possible. Not just superheroes in the media, because we have The Flash, Arrow on TV, Gotham, Supergirls coming next year, um, movies coming down the pike like Avengers, Age of Ultron, Ant-Man, which the trailer just came out this week and looks phenomenal. Phenomenal. Whoever thought I would say that an Ant-Man movie looks phenomenal. But the idea that this, this format exists to allow such detail and expansive storytelling, again, it never loses its path. We've got a lot of plates being spun, and not one of them falls down and breaks. Because we have the right team, the right cast, the right directors, just everything was right in the mindset of this show. And when you think about it, years ago, and not that long ago at, fa at that this would have been a ridiculous endeavor. For one thing, we would have looked down on it. It's a TV show, not a movie. Secondly, it's not network television. Uh, it's not even cable. It's streaming. And admittedly, this was a new endeavor for Marvel that I think worked out in ways that I don't think we would have ever expected. It certainly was, even though I was expecting a good show, I, it was unexpected to me how good it really was. How right the attitude was how great the look of the show was thanks to filming actually in New York. It really just made me thankful to live in this time. And I, I mean, I could gush on forever about this show and the things I liked, but really we're all fans. And I think we all fell in love with this. It's just, this is a great time to be a superhero fan because they're everywhere and don't take it for granted. Do not do that. And not saying I'm a I'm not trying to be a naysayer, but this won't last forever. I mean, think about when we were younger, I mean, for me, thinking about the 90s when I was collecting comics, late 80s, early 90s, the idea of seeing a Daredevil TV series, well, that was ridiculous. The idea of The Flash being back on TV, that wasn't going to happen. We had one season and it failed. And here we are preparing for a second season of The Flash next year, a fourth season of Arrow, um, a.k.a. Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, Iron Fist, The Defenders. It's an insane time. Embrace this. Embrace this. It's important that you that you really not take this for granted because we're not always going to have something of Daredevil's caliber, of its quality, and it's our character. It's our character that's getting the the rave critical reviews, our character that's the talk of Twitter and Facebook. I just I don't know how much better this could get for me. So my final verdict is <laughs> oh, honestly nothing got rage flipped, so it has to be good, right? This was the comic book brought to light. 
it brought, pardon me, comic book brought to life. Um, it was a dark, gritty, really visceral experience. And I'm ready to, to just, if I ever meet somebody from the cast and crew, I'm going to hug them. I'm going to thank them profusely. And I'm ready for season two. End of story. Bring on more. I want more episodes of Daredevil. I don't know how much investment I have in Jessica Jones or Iron Fist or Luke Cage. But if it's my boy Matt, I'm going to be there. You've got my buy-in completely. You can really screw up half a season. I'm still going to forgive you for how exquisite this season was. But I'm going to bring this little special to a close. Again, I'm aware of the sound quality. I apologize for the circumstances, but I promised you a, a Netflix special, and I'm going to deliver. It's it's a little bit in the raw, and I apologize for that, but never let it be said I didn't keep a promise to my listeners. I'll always keep that promise. I will be yeah, pardon me. I will be back on Sunday, of course, with episode fifty-two, which is covering the twenty fourteen Mark Wade Daredevil as Daredevil one hundred one continues. And just on that note, real quick, since Daredevil one hundred one has started, I've seen downloads increase in, in, in tenfold. I kid you not. Um, so I want to say thank you to new listeners. Don't let this episode really be the uh, deciding factor on the show overall. Uh, this is just me rambling for for the most part, but that's – well, maybe you should judge it by that. Don't judge the sound quality. That's all I'll say. But if you're new listeners, thank you. Thank you for finding my show. I do appreciate you. Feel free to drop me an email. Uh, my email address is mail at daredevilpodcast.com. The website is daredevilpodcast.com. There are links there to subscribe via RSS, iTunes. Uh, you can find me at twitter.com slash Weeder. And the show's Facebook page is facebook.com slash Daredevil Podcast. But thank you for finding the show. And to my listeners who've been with me since day one, thank you for your loyalty. It's all come to this moment. I'm excited to share this with you. Just be thankful. Be thankful that we have this moment. It's our time right now. Uh, so again, I'll be back on Sunday. Until then, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists for entertainment purposes only. I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening.